Let's hear for Ransom Hearts. Good job, ladies. You all are so good. I think the only praise band we have with a name other than just praise band, so that's great. If anybody asks you the name of your favorite rock band, the answer is Ransom Hearts. Yeah, Ransom Hearts. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, Franklin Campus. We love you so much. Pastor Eric, God bless you. I pray God is, is, is with you this morning as you worship. Perry, Oklahoma, I'm going to be with you next Sunday. Can't wait to make the road trip. Can't wait to see you all face to face. It is wonderful to be a part of the church of the living God. And with that in mind, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I love this prayer for the church. I keep coming back to it. This is the place where my Bible falls apart right here. I don't know what that says, but uh, it, it must mean I'm reading the, uh, reading the daylights out of this passage. I, I love this passage. I've come to it a lot uh, with our church at different times, and on this Sunday I want to come back to it with you. Paul is writing to a church, a real church uh, that, that meets in a house. It's in a place called Ephesus. And Paul is writing to, to talk and encourage to the, uh, the Christians there. And in the middle of the book of Ephesians, he stops and prays this prayer for the church. And it is a, a specific prayer for a specific church, a specific place there in Ephesus. But it's also a prayer for, for the church, the church of Jesus, the church in all time and all places. And that makes it also a prayer for us. Notice what Paul thanks God for. Notice what Paul prays for. And I see if you can get a, a sense of what every church, and especially our church, really needs. Uh, from the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, a prayer for the church. Why don't you stand out of reverence for God's word and let's read together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I love that. I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you what? Spiritual wisdom. To give you spiritual wisdom. What does the church need more than anything else? Spiritual wisdom, yeah. Uh, uh, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might, what? Grow, so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of, say it, the church, for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Take your seats. 
God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Christ is head of everything. Christ is head of the church. We are his body. Christ is the head. It's a very, very simple, simple concept, but also almost impossible for us to grasp in everyday real life. We're the body of Christ, but he is our head. He is the head. Can anything live without a head? Can anybody live without a head? You say no. You ready? I'm about to blow your mind. Are you ready? Hang on to something. You ready? Let me introduce you to... Mike the Headless Chicken. I'm sorry to show you this. This is real. This is real. This is Mike the Headless Chicken. If you notice, he's like every other chicken except he has no head. Yeah, and that's where the story kind of gets interesting. Now, Mike was just a rooster in Lloyd Olson's barnyard back in the 40s. Uh, Lloyd Olson lived in a place called Fruta, Colorado. His mother-in-law came over for a visit, and his wife said, Lloyd, go out in the barnyard and bring in a chicken. Now, this is in the 40s. When your wife said, bring in a chicken, what did that mean? Yeah, you got to go out to the, I'm sorry, kids, to, to ruin your life like this, but, but what happened in the old days was if you wanted to eat chicken, nobody had invented chicken nuggets yet. There was just, you know, the chicken, the whole nugget. And so you would go out into the barnyard and you would get the chicken and you'd have to kill it so you could eat it because live chickens are very difficult to eat. You have to kill it first. So how did they kill chickens in the old days? The quickest way to take off the head because nothing lives without a head, right? Or so we've been told. Lloyd Olson went out, he grabbed this rooster he grabbed the rooster, he put its head on the chopping block, I'm, I'm so sorry, he put his head on the chopping block, and Lloyd happened to really love, of all things, when he's eating chicken, he loved the neck. He loved the neck. So Lloyd tried to cut off this chicken's head as far up the neck as he could, to leave as much of the neck, and that's what he did. But what happened, he drew back the, I'm sorry kids, he drew back the axe, and he brought it down, he chopped off the rooster's head, but the rooster just got up. Kind of shook it off, started walking. Now, sometimes chickens without their heads, they'll move a lot. They'll flop around. Y'all have probably seen that if you're old enough to have, to have lived through that. You've seen a chicken with its head cut off. But, but honestly, this rooster wasn't like a, an ordinary chicken with its head cut off. It just started walking around, just sort of walking without its head. The farmer Olson, at this point, his heart sort of goes out to the rooster, and he feels like, you know, if this rooster can live through this, I'm going to spend my life taking care of it now. So that's what he did. Lloyd Olson took care of this rooster. He named it Mike. And it became very famous worldwide as Mike the Headless Chicken. I don't even have to make this stuff up, people. This is real. If you notice, the picture looking at came out of Life Magazine. Life magazine. Mike the Headless Chicken became very, very famous and very, very popular. He lived for 18 months. He lived for 18 months. Farmer Olson would feed it through an eyedropper, just dropping food like into its neck. He fed it milk and water, and then he learned to feed it small pieces of corn. You could feed this rooster. Now, this rooster has no head. You understand that now? Mike is a headless chicken, but he lived 18 months. He would spend his days like every other chicken. He would go out in the barnyard, and he would scratch, and he'd peck. But it was kind of sad because... He had no head. 
But he would still try to peck. And he would act like a chicken. You know how a chicken will take its beak and kind of preen its feathers? Mike would do that, except he had no head. Yeah, it's like he's the only one who didn't know that he didn't have a head. And every single morning, what do roosters do? They crow. Mike the headless chicken would get up and try to crow. He would be at the very top. He could still get up to the very top of the roosting pole there. He would get up there and he'd try to crow. But all he could really do was kind of flap his wings and blow. You understand? He had no head. People started paying 25 cents a piece to see Mike the Headless Chicken. Lloyd also became a very, very wealthy man. Eventually, Mike was insured for over $10,000. I mean, if you got a headless chicken, you need to insure him for something like $10,000. Sadly, in the summer of 1947, Mike the Headless Chicken died in a motel outside of Phoenix. Seriously, seriously. He died in a motel outside of Phoenix. Yeah, he died. They think he choked. I'm serious. I'm serious. That, that was the end of Mike the Headless Chicken, unless you still live in Fruta. I'm not making this up. Look, Google it, people. In Fruta, Colorado, every May, there is still a Headless Chicken Festival. And they celebrate with a 5K run. It's called the Run Like a Headless Chicken. Seriously? And all the, I'm not making this up. And all the kids in Fruit of Colorado in the month of May, they play Pin the Head on the Chicken. Yeah. Oh, I'm serious. Colorado must be a great place. It just must be a fantastic place. Yeah. So uh, this theory that nothing really lives without a head, it, it's interesting because Mike the Headless Chicken had a pretty good run of it, 18 months without a head. I'll ask the question again. Can anything really live without a head? It might, but if it does, it's freakish. It's freakish and it's ultimately doomed. Do you understand? It's, it's freakish and ultimately doomed, which brings me to the phenomenon of the headless church. Is there any such thing as a headless church? No. no. The answer for the first place would be no, that there's no such thing as a headless church, because the church is by its very definition what? The body of Christ. By its very definition, the church is the body of Christ, and the body has a head, and that head is Christ. That head is Christ. So by its very definition, a church cannot be headless. It cannot live without its head. You cannot separate the church from the head. You cannot separate the body of Christ from Christ its head. It's just an impossibility. However, I would offer to you that there are quite a few headless churches running around these days, and it's freakish, and ultimately they're doomed. Did you understand that? It's freakish, but truly there are churches who have managed to become separated from the head. Now, Christ himself will never separate himself from his church. Christ will not cut himself off from us, but we will indeed ourselves sometimes separate ourselves from Christ. We refuse to live under the sovereignty, under the, the supremacy of Christ. This is his church. It's always been his church. All of the churches are his churches. You understand? The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head. So if the Christ 
Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. Why would we even want to live without him as our head? Why would we try to separate ourselves? Would we do that on purpose? I don't think we'd come out and say, why don't we just separate ourselves from Christ the head all in favor say I? I don't think we'd do that. I don't think we'd say that. But very subtly sometimes, we separate ourselves from Christ, the head of this church, because honestly, if Christ is the head of the church, that means that none of us can be. You understand? If Christ is the head, that means that it is the, the mind of Christ that governs us. It means that we exist as his body, which means we have one function, and that is to follow his impulses. That means that we exist so that he can operate through us. We are nothing but his body. He's the head. And as long as he is the head, that means that all we do is that we just wait for him. We wait for his instruction. We wait for his signal. We wait for his control. We're his body. We simply exist so that he can operate through us. He is the head. We're the body. I had a father telling me about his little girl in kindergarten who got in trouble, really bad trouble in school because she was walking down the hall just hitting people. Not your daughter, somebody else's daughter. It might have been your daughter, actually. She's just walking down the hall. She's kindergarten, walking down the hall, just hitting people. Pop, pop, like a Three Stooges episode. Just pop, pop. She got in big trouble. Called the parents into school. Daddy put a little girl aside and said, honey, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? Why would you just walk down the hall hitting people? She said, daddy, you know how sometimes you're just walking and your arm flies up? You're just walking and your arm just flies up. That's what's happening to me. Oh, really? Oh, really? Your arm just flies up? Really? Really? Yeah. You understand? As the body, the limbs don't just fly up. They follow the head. The head, the brain, the mind operates through the body. We are his body. Christ is the Head. We don't just fly off. We don't just do our own thing. We wait for him. But, but the problem is sometimes as a church, we want to just do our own thing. We want to fly off. We want to be in control. Some of us would really like to just kind of have the church and let the church do what we want. As a matter of fact, we just kind of like the whole body, the church to sort of rotate around us and, and take care of us and, and make sure that we're always happy. And I'm telling you that that's not what the church is for. The church is not here for me. I may be the pastor, I'm not the head. This church is not here so that I as pastor can, can, can get my way. That's not what we're about. That's not what I'm about. God help me. I never want to be that pastor. The church does not exist for the deacons so that the deacons can get what they want. The church doesn't exist for any particular family or any individual. We have one head, and that head is Christ. And we exist for Christ, and he operates through us. And we just simply wait, and we move when he moves us. Do you understand? He's the head. We're the body. That's what the church is. That's what this church is. So if Christ is our head, if Christ is the one that, that is in control, if we just want to have his mind operating through us, then it's important for us to ask what Christ wants for us. If he's the head, if he's running this show, then what is it that he wants? If he's operating through us, then what is it that he has for us to do? What does Christ want for us? 
Well, well, in this prayer, this passage, it's actually really clear. If you could boil it down to one word, the one word would be wisdom. If there's one thing that we lack, if there's one thing that every church in the world lacks, it's always wisdom. We just lack wisdom. There are things that we just don't know or things that we don't know well enough or things that we'll never, ever know deeply enough. We just have this perpetual, perpetual need for more and more wisdom. But in this prayer, it's wisdom that's focused in three different areas, wisdom that applies in in three different things. And I just want to offer to you, these are the things that Woodburn Baptist Church needs more than anything else right now, wisdom in these three areas. The first When it comes to the knowledge of God, we need to know God. We need to be growing deeper and more solid in the knowledge of God. If there's anything we don't know well enough, it's God himself, his word, his character, his will, his ways. We need to know God. Now, I know some of you have been saints walking with the Lord for years and years and years. God bless you. You know more about the Lord than I may ever know. But but let me offer to you, you don't know everything yet. None of us can possibly know the inexhaustible depths of, of God's being, God's knowledge. And this is what the prayer is about, that we might grow in the knowledge of God. We don't know enough about him. We don't know him well enough yet. We've got to grow in the knowledge of God. So let me ask you, in any relationship where there's really deep knowing, where there's an intimacy in knowing one another, if you've ever had a friend that you could almost, you could almost finish each other's sentences, or a spouse that you can just sit beside and know, you, you just know their heart, How do you come to know a person in that way? If we're going to grow in the knowledge of God, how does that knowledge get deeper? It gets deeper through experience. Do you understand? It's through experience. Here's my wife on the front row. Casey's awesome. We've been married for for 20-something years. It's wonderful. The the day I stood at the altar and, and made my promises to her, I thought I knew her. She probably thought she knew me. But, but years down the road, we know each other with the depth, with, with an intimacy that we couldn't even imagine at the start. Now, how does that happen? Honestly, it just happens by, by experience. We've been through stuff together. We've been through hard stuff together. We have cried our eyes out together. We've wanted to claw each other's eyes out together. We've been through stuff together. It's experience. It's experience. It's it's talking and listening. It's just this awareness that as long as we live, our hearts will always be expanding to know one another. And this is how it is with with God. This is how it is in growing in the knowledge of God. you got to go through stuff together. you got to experience the Lord. You've got to live your life with him. You've got to be in his word, listening, getting to know his heart every single day. You're going to go through stuff, but the question is, are you going to go through stuff with him? Because if you will walk with him through your cancer, if you will walk with him through the hard times in your marriage, if you'll walk with him through college, if you'll walk with him through all of your trials and all of your good days, if you will just walk with him, you will grow in such knowledge of him. You just don't even know God yet. I don't even know God yet. There is so much of him to know. 
He's got to lead us on in experiences. That means new experiences, things we've never done before. He's going to take us into new experiences and, and deeper experiences. Sometimes God's going to turn toward us in a way that we hardly recognize him. He's going to somehow become so much bigger, so much larger. Do you understand? You'll never finish getting to know him. It's one of the greatest needs of this church, just to grow in knowledge of God. That means we need new experience with him, deeper experiences with him. We need riskier experiences with him because we want to know him. The next thing the scripture mentions is a prayer for wisdom and insight that hearts will be flooded so that we can understand our, our hope, so that we can understand hope. Now, it's absolutely amazing that Paul includes hope here, something that our hearts need to be flooded with. He says, I pray that your heart will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope for all those that, that God calls to himself. Do you understand? It's something about hope that's so critical for the church, something about hope that is so ingredient to our life in Christ, something about hope that just simply makes us the church. If you take out hope, you don't have a church anymore. It's got to be about hope. And if there's anything this church needs, it's that our hearts will be flooded with the light of God's hope. Hope. Now what is hope and why is it so important? Well, hope always has to do with what? The future. Hope always has to do with the future. One of the things I've been doing in my own prayer life this past week is giving thanks because we're coming up on Thanksgiving. I've been giving thanks, but I've been trying to do a discipline of thanking God, not for what I've had this year, but for what I'm going to have next year. I'm thanking God for the blessings that I believe he's going to give me next year. That's called hope. It's called hope. And there's something wonderful and, and invigorating about a, a heart that's flooded with the light of hope. You see, hope always calls you into the, the future. As human beings, and sometimes especially the older we get or the more prosperous and comfortable we become, we become very, very rooted in the present and, and then sometimes in the past. We absolutely fall in love with the past. Maybe we, we consider the past the best days of our lives. Maybe the memories of the past are just so good that we would just pack up and live there if we could. But you can't live in the past and be a Christian. You can't live in the past and be the body of Christ. You can't because Christ is always calling us forward into the future. You can't live in the past. You can't go back to the past. It doesn't matter how wonderful those days were. Those days are gone. They're simply gone. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you accept that, that, that all of those days are gone, but then there are days ahead, that there are days to come. And, and those days to come, that's where Christ is. That's where he's calling us from. He's always calling us into the future, always into the future. That means for us, just like for Paul, part of our job is always learning how to just let go. Just let go of the past. Let go of it. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was prosperous. God did amazing things, but that's in the past. God doesn't do repeats. You understand? He's not like the Rolling Stones out there still singing the same old songs after 70 years. That's not God. God is always doing a new thing. 
He's not interested in repeating the whole Billy Graham crusade thing as great as that was in its day. God's going to do something brand new in our day. Do you understand? God doesn't do reruns. He doesn't do repeats. He's not even interested in that. He is a God of such infinite imagination, a God of such amazing creativity. He's going to do something brand new, which means if you're going to be a part of what God's going to do in the future, you've got to be moving with him. You have to follow him in, in, into new days. You have to be willing to let him flood your heart with hope. I love what God has done in my lifetime. I love the way I was raised. I love going out in the barnyard with dad and killing chickens and then scrubbing all the feathers off and eating a chicken that never even got cold. You understand? That was cool. Now, I don't really want to go back to that. But understand, I remember some of that stuff. I remember that. I remember how church was when I was growing up. I remember how preachers were when I was growing up. I remember the singing when I was growing up. But, you know, the thing is, I'm grown now, and and God's doing a new thing. And that's why Paul prays for the church. He says, "I, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope. The best is always yet to come. It's always yet to come. And if Woodburn Baptist Church has anything, blessings, you understand the blessings are in the future with God, and he's calling us forward. We need a whole new revival of hope. We need people who get a new vision for the future, not just so much for what God has done, but for what God is going to do. Because if we're going to be a part of what God's going to do, it's going to be in the future. Do you understand? It's called hope. We need it. A lot of it. It's what keeps us alive and moving forward. Third thing, we need wisdom. We need insight when it comes to, verse 19, the incredible greatness of God's power. Understand, of all the things that we don't know very well, we really don't understand what God's capable of. We have no idea. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have a brain that can imagine what God is capable of doing. That's why we tend to pray very, very small prayers, very, very humble prayers. We don't want to ask too much of God. We don't want him to throw his back out, you know, trying to help us. We don't want God to overexert himself. We have the most infantile knowledge of what God is capable of doing. And that's why in the prayer, the prayer is that we would have insight into the greatness of God's power. You don't understand what he can do, but you need to grow in understanding. We don't have a lot of insight into what God is capable of doing, but we need insight because this is critical. This is critical because everything that we're going to accomplish that's worth accomplishing is going to be accomplished in whose power? God's power. God's power. God who is capable of everything. God for whom nothing is impossible. That's the power that we're supposed to grow in the knowledge of. Now we have a pretty good sense of our power. Pretty good sense of what we're capable of. We know how to count heads. We know how to count dollars, and that's pretty much how we measure our power as a church. How many people are coming? How much money are they giving? How much money do we have left? Is that power? No. 
No, it's not the power that's going to accomplish supernatural things. Do you understand? Supernatural things are accomplished with supernatural power. We don't have any of that. I don't have supernatural power in me. In some ways that's sort of depressing. In other ways it's liberating. It's liberating because that means if God has supernatural things for this church to accomplish, guess what? It's not going to be my power that makes that possible. It's not going to be your power. It's not going to be about how much money's in the bank. And it's not going to be about how many people are coming. It's going to be about is God behind it. Does God want it to happen? Because if it's God's will, it's going to happen by God's power. We need to grow in the knowledge of the greatness of God's power. Now that sounds exciting. I'll grant you, that sounds exciting when I say it. I get excited when I say it. But it also scares me to death. That scares me to death. Because how can you learn about God's great power like that? How can you learn about a God for whom nothing is impossible? How can you learn how to draw upon a source of infinite power? How can you learn about that kind of power? Only one way. By being in situations that require that kind of power. The only way to discover the greatness of God's supernatural power is to be in a situation that requires God's supernatural power. That means that we have to move forward into things that we can't accomplish on our own. If it's possible for us to do it outside of prayer, if it's possible for us to do it outside of a total surrender to God, if it's possible for us to do it without God, it's not worth doing. It's not worth doing. The prayer is not that we would discover the greatness of our own power. That's foolish. The prayer is that God's people, the church, would discover the greatness of God's power. That means, if we're going to learn about God's great power, we would have to be involved in things that only God's great power could achieve. Are you interested? As pastor... I'm not the head. Don't want to be. I do pray a lot for our church. I do take very seriously the responsibility to speak and know that people listen. And I take seriously the responsibility to, to lead. Not in the sense of telling you where, what we're going to do and where we're going to go. We decide these things together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But you know my heart. And we've been talking quite a while about something called the 2020 vision. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's talk about it in the sense of how our church must grow in the knowledge of God. And how we must grow in, in, in a confident hope that calls us into the future. Let's talk about it in the sense of, of needing to step out in, in such a way where only God's great power could, could achieve what God wants achieved. 2020 vision is simple. It's about planting churches. It's a vision that Woodburn Baptist Church, between now and the year 2020, I wish it were 20 years, it's not 20 years, but between now and the year 2020, that God would use us to plant something like 20 churches. I really feel like that's what God has for us. 
Now, I know some of you listen to that and think, Brother Tim, that's so crazy. Why plant churches? Why you got to go do something like that? Why can't we just do like every other church? Why can't we just have a great big church here and, and we can build on? We can blow out that wall and we can blow out the ceiling and, and we can build like Diddle Arena here in Woodburn and we can just keep adding people. And I'm just saying, I, don't, I really don't think that's what God has for our church. Honestly, I don't think you all want to go to church in Diddle Arena in Woodburn. Most people who join Woodburn Baptist Church say they join the church because they like a small church. Do you understand? I really think God wants us to grow, but I think we're supposed to grow differently. Not by becoming a gigantic single church, but by starting congregations. This isn't new. That This isn't something that, that I dreamed up after too much Taco Bell. Do you understand? There's nothing new about this. The book of Ephesians is written by a man named... Paul. And what did Paul do for a living? Well, he planted churches. Among other things, he was just a church planter. It's true, he led people to the Lord. He brought people to salvation in Christ, but he didn't stop there. That was never just the goal, to bring people to Christ. He was always planting churches. Whenever Paul was in his city, when he left the city, there was a church there, a new church there. He planted churches. It is the oldest way of advancing the kingdom of Christ. It is the oldest way of growing the church, a church planting. Where do you think this church came from? Do you know? Well, to tell you where this church came from, I would have to tell you about a church over in Rockfield called Providence Knob. Do you know Providence Knob Baptist Church? Raise your hands. You know that church? Go look at it. It's your mama. <laughs> Providence Knob Baptist Church in the 1800s was a church planting machine. A church planting machine machine, Providence Knob. Providence Knob Baptist Church planted most every church you know of. They planted First Baptist Church, named ironically once you understand that they're not the first church. You understand? Providence Knob planted Bowling Green Baptist Church, which became First Baptist. Providence Knob planted them. Providence Knob planted Clearfort. Providence Knob planted Woodburn. Providence Knob just planted churches like crazy people. They planted churches. In the mid-1800s, around the 1860s, there was a man named John South. John South, who was a member of Providence Knob, he had gone up to Bowling Green Baptist to help out there, and then he went, sent by Providence Knob, to plant Auburn Baptist Church. He planted Auburn Baptist Church, and then he got a heart for a little spot by the railroad track called Woodburn. Woodburn had people. In those days, Woodburn had two saloons but needed a church. So John South came over and planted a church in Woodburn. You're sitting in it. 140-something years later, you're sitting in it. Do you understand? John South was a church planter from Providence Nub, planting churches all over this county. And then he went on to just run for Congress. Amazing. Amazing people doing amazing things. Do you understand? And they did it on horseback. And they didn't have the internet or, or microphones or electricity. Are, are you listening? You think it would be hard for us? You think it wasn't hard for them? They did this from the back of a horse. And they planted churches. They filled this county with churches. Churches that are still here. Churches that are now planting churches. You know, of course, that Providence Knob planted by Lampkin Park. What's the name of it? Forest Park, and Forest Park planted Living Hope, 
You understand? Providence Knob is now a great-grandmother. This is how it works. It's how it's always worked. Until about 20 or 25 years ago when we got the idea that maybe just gigantic buildings was the answer. We thought that maybe growing churches was just about seeing how many people we could cram under one roof. We've been doing that now for 25, 30 years. I'm not sure that that's the way that's going to lead us into the future. At least not all of us. Something tells me that we still just need to be planting churches like they did in the old days. Planting churches. I really feel like God is calling Woodburn Baptist Church to be in our day what Providence Knob was in that day. Somebody needs to have that vision. Somebody needs to do that. Why not us? Why not us? Well, 20 churches sounds like an awful lot. Why can't we just say five? Why can't we just say 100? I mean, come on. Let's just do it. Let's just pour ourselves into doing something great for God. Do you understand how short this life is? Do you really think the reason Christ died is so we could get together on the 13th and have Thanksgiving supper at South Warren High School? Do you really think that's what it's all about? Do you really think it's about sitting on the pew and then getting in the car and, and, and criticizing the music and talking about how the preacher went too long and how bad the man sweats? I mean, do you really think that's all it's about? Surely, surely you want to live your life for something greater than that. And I'm saying Christ has something greater than that for you. Something greater than that for all of us. We are his body. He is our head. We're supposed to be growing in knowledge of him. And in the confident hope of something in the future that he has for us. And growing in in the knowledge of the greatness of his power. I want to see the greatness of his power. I, I really do. What if this is what he wants us to do? Well, we can't do it. But he could do it through us. What do you think a church is? How do you think you'd plant a church? Well, there are a million ways to plant a church. If we plant 20, I don't think it'll all look the same. I love what God's doing in Franklin. I don't think in the future they're all going to look like Franklin. I don't think we'll necessarily start with a big building. I don't think it always happens that way. You know how most churches that have ever been planted in all of history, you know how they get started, you know where they get started? Somebody's house. How many houses are represented in this house right now? More than 20. Do you understand? Most churches that have ever been planted got planted in somebody's house. If 10 people next year made it a goal to start a Bible study in their house to reach their neighborhood, people aren't going to church. Are your neighbors in church? All of your neighbors Christians? Man, what if you started the Bible study in your neighborhood and you just started bringing new people to Christ? You understand, new churches reach new people. New churches reach new people. Plant churches and houses. We, we can do some of that. Honestly, we can do some of that. And I feel like God is going to lead some of you to do exactly that. Brian Ahern and Perry, Oklahoma, they planted a church by starting a coffee shop. A a coffee shop, people. And it's amazing what God is doing through a coffee shop. It's a church. It's amazing. 
Churches can start in all kinds of places and in all kinds of ways. You understand, it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be the body of Christ. It's a great time to plant churches. We can do what John South never imagined doing. We can be connected. We can help one another. We can support one another in ways that Providence now, back in its day, could never have imagined. We have tremendous blessings, tremendous resources. But it scares me to death. I'll be honest. I first mentioned 2020 Vision several years ago, and there have been times I think, man, why did I ever say that? Why did I ever bring that up? Man, years are flying by. Man, it, it, it's 2011. 2012 is almost on us. You're going to turn around twice, it's going to be 2015. Man, the years are flying by quicker than the churches are sprouting up. When it comes to a vision like this, a lot of things just open up. It opens up a lot of questions. What does this mean? How will this happen practically? Yeah, it's God's power, but everything takes money and everything takes people. And how's it going to come together? Just questions open up and doubts open up. There just becomes this tremendous empty place around the 2020 vision. What's the next step? And how do we move forward? And what's the next church going to look like? And don't you think we need to get on this, Brother Tim? And don't you think we should be pouring into pastors? Yes, I do. I think we train leaders. And I think leaders go and plant churches. I think we have to develop leaders in our church. I think that's part of it, but mostly I just don't know. I don't know. I don't have that wisdom. I don't have that kind of hope. I don't have that power. It scares me to death. It's why I love the last part of this prayer. I love that last verse. And the church is his body. It is made, say the word, full and complete By Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is the thing you need to know about Christ. He fills things. He he completes things. Right now, the 2020 vision has managed to hang something very incomplete in front of us. Guess what? It's going to be Christ who completes that. And he's going to operate through his body, through his people, the church. I want to be a part of that. I don't see the other 18, 17 churches. I don't see that in the future. But you know what? He already sees them. He sees every one of those churches. He sees every one of those churches. And they already belong to him. They are his. Did you get that? They're his. They'll never be ours. They will always be his. He is the one who fills and completes things. And he will complete this. He will fill this. He'll fill this church. He'll fulfill this vision. It is Christ who fills things and completes things. But there's always one thing necessary, always one requirement. Before Christ can fill anything, what must be true? Before Christ can fill something, that thing must be empty, open. Right now, as a church, I want Christ to fill us. I want Christ to complete us. That means we have to empty ourselves of ourselves. I want to have the vision of Christ for this church. That means I have to empty my head, empty my heart of all of my dreams and visions. I just want Christ's vision. 
in your life right now. You have so many needs and you desire so much to have Christ, to have a knowledge of God, to have a confident hope and to, and to know the greatness of God's power. Do you understand that Jesus will fill you, but you have to be empty first? You have to turn some things loose. You have to let some things go. You have to stop living for your own desires and living to see your own dreams fulfilled. You have to stop living for yourself. You have to begin living for him. You see, Jesus fills everything. He completes everything, but it's got to be empty first. I can't imagine what it took. 140-something years ago for John South to ride his horse into Woodburn, find 12 people, and plant a church. That took courage. It it took imagination. It, It took a real knowledge of God. And what God wants for the world and for the church. It it took a kind of confident hope to to plant something that you might not even see completely uh, completely matured in your your own lifetime. You you plant things like that for the future. It's called hope. And those people had this confident hope to do amazing things and and leave them to God. And and this knowledge of, of the greatness of God's power. What God could do when his people will just let him work through them. I love being your pastor. I love our church. I love everything about it. But mostly, I just want to know that that this church in our lifetime functions as Christ's body, moved by his head, but by his impulses, but by his mind. I just want to be the emptiest pastor in the world so that Christ can fill me. I want us to become the emptiest church in the world so that we can be filled and completed by Christ. He is our head. We are his body. Pray with me. Oh God, help us. We are so full of ourselves. We are so full of ourselves. We are so full of our ideas. We are so full of our hurts. We're so full of our frustrations. We're so full of our opinions. We're so full of our preferences. We're so full of doubt. We're so full of fear. We are so full of sin and temptation and iniquity. We are so full of falseness. Lord, we're so full of greed. We're so full of prejudice. Lord, we're so full. We're so full. Lord, I pray that today we would just empty ourselves, Lord, that you could purge our hearts and our souls of everything that's not you. So then, Lord, you could turn around and fill us up, fill our hearts, fill our families, fill this church. Oh, God, time goes by so quickly. 140 years later, Lord, what John South planted by your power is still here, Lord. It's the church that we're sitting in. Oh, God, I just wonder what will be here in 140 years because of what you've done through us. Lord, I just wonder what kind of mark that we're going to leave for you because, Lord, I know that as your body you want to operate through us. There are things that you want to do through us. There will things that will never be done if we don't empty ourselves and do them through your power 
and confident hope of your calling. Lord Jesus, call us out. Let us grow in the knowledge of you. Let us grow in hope. Let us grow in a trust in your power. Let us grow deep. Let us grow serious. Make us courageous, willing to take risks. Help us, Lord, to stop being so afraid. Help us, Lord, to stop being so self-centered. Help us, Lord, just to be your body. Lord, we pray that you will be supreme over all things, especially over all things in this church. We empty ourselves, Lord. We give it all to you that we might bring you praise and glory for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.